Now, without a doubt, when it comes to marriage, there's a lot of mystery. There's mystery in love and marriage, who you fall in love with, who you're going to marry, and those kind of things. And uh, kids don't mean to be funny, but since they don't understand much about romance, they say the funniest things. And even when they're answering questions that are fairly serious, their answers, while often true, are in the Greek hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. And some children aged 7 through 10 were asked some questions. For example, how do you decide who to marry? And Kirsten, age 10, responded, no person really decides who they're going to marry before they grow up, but God decides it way before. And you get to find out who you're stuck with later. <laughs> Derek, age 8, answered the question, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? And Derek answered, you might have to guess based on whether they're yelling at the same kids or not. <clears throat> which ties into the question asked Lori, age eight, what do you think your mom and dad have in common? And Lori says, both don't want any more kids. <laughs> when is it okay to kiss someone? Pam, age seven, says, when they are rich. <laughs> Her parents need to come to the parenting class. <laughs> Kurt, also age seven, answered that one. The law, has, the law says you have to be 18, so I wouldn't want to mess with that. Is it better to be single or married? Anita, age 9, says, It's better for boys, or let me start that over. It's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. How would you make a marriage work? Ricky, age 10, says, Tell your wife she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. <laughs> I think only the guys are laughing on that one. <laughs> Toward the end of his teaching on marriage in Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 5, he writes in verse 32, the mystery is great. The mystery is great. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And so this morning we're going to come to understand why, what Paul means by this great mystery. The mystery is great. So please look again at the fifth chapter of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 2. After speaking of a man being joined to his wife, Paul writes in verse 32, The mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Paul has been talking about the wife's role and responsibilities and the responsibilities and the, the role of the husband and then he writes, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. He says he's talking about Christ and his church. And our thought would be, well, I thought, Paul, we were talking about marriage. You've been talking about marriage. And Paul says, this is the great mystery. Paul uses the word mystery in a very specific way in his writings. And this is the way it's used in, in Scripture. A mystery in Scripture is not something that we normally think of as a mystery. It's not something mysterious. It's not a puzzlement that has to be solved. A mystery in Scripture is a divine truth that was previously unrevealed or hidden. It's a divine truth that was hidden. It hasn't been revealed. But now it has been fully exposed by God. It's something that was hidden in times past, but now has been fully revealed by God. If you look back at Ephesians chapter 3, in verses uh, 4 and 5, Ephesians 3, verse 4, Paul says, here's another mystery. 
verse 4 of chapter 3, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the, the mystery of Christ. What is the mystery of Christ? What is the mystery here? Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. The holy apostles and prophets of, of the New Testament. The mystery of Christ was unknown in previous generations, unknown to the Old Testament saints. Even the Old Testament prophets of God had no concept of this. They were clueless. But now it's been fully revealed through the New Testament apostles and prophets. And what is the mystery of Christ? Paul tells us in verse 6, this is the mystery of Christ. To be specific, this is it. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That God would take the Jews and the sons and children of Israel in the Old Testament and take the sons of God in the New Testament through Jesus Christ, these people, Jew and Gentile, who hated one another, and Christ would make them one. One body, the church. That is the mystery here. That is the mystery of Christ. The mystery, this mystery has now been fully revealed. So when we get to the great mystery in Ephesians chapter 5, this is a mystery that has also been fully revealed to us. It's not some riddle. It's not something we have to figure out and figure out how this works. Paul clearly reveals the mystery. Something that was totally unknown and incomprehensible to the Old Testament saints, but now we know it. It's been fully revealed. So what is the mystery that Paul is revealing in Ephesians chapter 5 that concerns marriage? This is the mystery. Okay, I should have put this in your notes this morning, so I'm going to ask you to write it down if you're, if you're taking notes. This is the mystery. The marriage relationship is intended by God. The marriage relationship is intended by God. To be a living illustration, to be a living illustration of the relationship, to be a living illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church. The marriage relationship is intended by God to be a living illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church. That's the mystery. Paul's teaching on marriage, as you can imagine and know, creates a head-on collision with the beliefs and the practices of our culture. In 2006, the Federal Marriage Amendment to the United States Constitution failed to pass the Congress of the United States, and it also failed in the Senate. Now, the main argument against it was stated by one particular congressman. He said, we need to get past the medieval ancient concept of marriage between a man and a woman. And nine years later, the Supreme Court ruled that the states cannot deny same-sex marriages, and now bakers and photographers and others are being sued and criminalized because they will not participate in the ceremonies. And for years, Paul's writings have been written off as the ranting and raving of an ancient male chauvinist. Now, it's one thing for the unbelieving world to reject Paul's instructions. It's quite another for Christians to do so. Or for Christians to tiptoe past passages like Ephesians chapter 5 while claiming that they take the scripture seriously. Or claim that they're walking in a way that's worthy of their calling in Jesus Christ in their tiptoeing 
around these things. Now, much misunderstanding concerning marriage today, even in some Christian circles, comes, I believe, because we fail to understand the great mystery of marriage that Paul reveals in Ephesians chapter 5. The great mystery is that the marriage relationship was designed by God to be a living illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church. Marriage was instituted in the Garden of Eden long before the church began. Yet that union in the garden between a man and a woman nevertheless anticipated the fact that someday God would form his church and that God would ultimately present the church to his son as his bride. One of the great pictures in the New Testament is that the church is being prepared as a bride, the bride of Christ. And, and one of the clearest applications of this picture is, is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Just listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Sarcastically, he says that. But indeed, you are bearing with me. Then he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband. Church, I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Paul feared that the church in Corinth had committed or was committing spiritual adultery. They were ready to accept another Jesus, another groom, as it were, a different gospel, a different spirit. And Paul was looking forward to that day, which John described in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb, where the church, we the church, will be presented as a bride to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 27, back in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, 27th verse of this fifth chapter, where the church will be presented as a bride to Christ, verse 27, a bride to Christ that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. God designed marriage. God instituted marriage long before Jesus came into this world, long before Jesus established the church to be a living illustration of Christ's relationship to his church. That is what Paul calls the great mystery, a divine truth that was hidden in ages past but now has been fully revealed. Marriage is a magnificent drama vividly portraying the relationship between Christ and his church. We can use baptism as an illustration of the significance of this. Now suppose we were to suggest that baptism was merely an ancient celebration. It's outdated, it's unmeaningful to an enlightened society such as ours, and, and we decided that baptism needed to be more enjoyable, more meaningful in our culture. There must be some way to get more people to buy into it. So why not have a swimming party instead? Sing a few songs, kumbaya, whatever you want to sing, get everybody together. We can invite the whole neighborhood, let anyone take a dip that wants to take a dip. Wouldn't more of our unsaved friends get into the water that way? Certainly more people would come, more would participate. Hey, we could add a barbecue and call it the Lord's Supper. 
we would reject such a foolish proposal as ludicrous, right? We'd first argue that we cannot set aside that which our Lord instituted and commanded us to do. Furthermore, a swimming party would lose all the symbolism of baptism and it would lose all its meaning. Turn over to to Paul's letter to the Romans for a minute, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, the third verse. We, We studied this not too long ago and the reason that we, and we learn that the reason that we baptize in a certain way by immersion according to the Lord's command is because baptism as a symbol portrays certain divine truths. Romans chapter 6 beginning at verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Paul is explaining a spiritual truth that goes way beyond getting wet from head to toe. Picture what is taking place in verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. As the person goes into the water in baptism, symbolizing that Jesus has been placed in the tomb, we go down into the waters of baptism, into a burial of sorts, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, symbolizing the resurrection of Christ, we are brought out of the water. Why? So that we too might walk in newness of life. Every time a believer is baptized, it portrays his or her identification with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So that the believer might walk in newness of life with the crucified and resurrected Savior. Baptism, therefore, is an outward symbol of the spiritual reality that took place when a person receives Jesus Christ. Therefore, you don't mess with the symbol. You don't change the symbols because if you do, it obscures or distorts the divine truth that the symbol is intended to portray. A sanctified swimming party says nothing about the death of Jesus for our sins and his resurrection so that we might walk in newness of life. And so like baptism, like the Lord's Supper, marriage is a divine institution instituted by God himself. It's much more than an ancient or modern celebration, a way to get people hitched. Christian marriage has certain commitments. Christian marriage has certain obligations and duties which are symbolic. The roles that God has given to a Christian husband and the roles and the duties that God has given to a Christian wife are not culturally derived, nor are they arbitrarily based. The roles are intended by God to symbolize and represent that greater and fundamental reality. While marriage is temporal, it just lasts for a time, the reality which marriage symbolizes is eternal. Therefore, we cannot understand the importance of the duties of a husband in a marriage or the duties of a wife in a marriage without first grasping something of the reality which Christian marriage is to symbolically communicate. Baptism communicates spiritual realities beyond the baptism. The Lord's Supper communicates spiritual realities beyond the eating of the bread and drinking of the cup. God-instituted marriage communicates spiritual realities beyond the union of a man and a woman. Therefore, to mess with the institution of marriage as instituted by God, either by the church or by society, is to mess with and to miscommunicate certain spiritual realities. 
Now, the question is not what same-sex marriages and unions say about our culture and society. What it says about our culture and society, that's a no-brainer. We know what gay marriages say about America. Culture and society have no difficulty in communicating their values, do they? They have no difficulty in legislating their values. They have done a great job of communicating what they want and getting what they want. But we have to ask, what do same-sex unions communicate about the relationship of Jesus Christ to his church? What does that communicate? That is the true insult of same-sex marriages. It's not so much about what it says about a sinful relationship, as bad as that is, because all sin is sin. And all sexual relationships outside of God-ordained marriage are sinful. But the true insult is what same-sex marriages communicate concerning Jesus Christ. What it says about Christ and his loving relationship to the body of Christ as its head. We don't mess with God-given symbols. We don't mess with God-given institutions because it miscommunicates and profanes the spiritual reality. It takes what is holy and makes it unholy. So we don't mess with it. The fundamental reality which underlies and explains the attitudes and the context of a man and the attitudes and conduct of his wife in marriage is the relationship of Jesus Christ to his church. The pattern, the blueprint for marriage, and the husband's role and the wife's role is set and designed by God. The blueprint for a godly home of influence is designed and prescribed by God. So with this in mind, and that's really all just introduction. <laughs> with this in mind, I want to briefly trace the great mystery through Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. As we look at this fifth chapter of Ephesians, we see three aspects of the relationship of Jesus Christ to his bride, to his church. First of all, we see Christ's headship. And then we see his submission, Christ's submission on behalf of his church, on behalf of his bride. And then we see the unity of Christ and his church. So first of all, in speaking in reference to Christ and his church, Paul refers to the headship of Christ, the headship of Christ. Look at verse 23 of Ephesians chapter 5 again, the 23rd verse of this fifth chapter. Now, this is going to be difficult, but I'm going to ask you to do something here that, that's going to be a little tough because I want you to look past for a moment what it says about wives and husbands because you're going to see that the wife is to be, what, submissive to her husband? Put that on the top shelf right now where you can't reach it, what it says about the wife. And then you're going to see that the husband is the head of the wife. Put that up on the top shelf right now. You know, stand on your tiptoes, put it up there. Whatever it says about wives and husbands, because we're not going to understand that at all until we understand what it means in Christ as the church. So I know that's going to be a little tough, and there's going to be questions that are raised in your mind. We will get to those in, over the next couple of Sundays. But at this point, we want to understand Christ as the head of the church. Verse 23 of Ephesians chapter 5. For the husband is the head of the wife, top shelf, okay, put that out of your mind, as Christ also is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Christ is the head, the church is the body. 
It's wonderfully straightforward at this point, isn't it? Christ is the head, the church is the body. And the New Testament is replete with references as Jesus Christ is head over his church. And I just want to point out a few references that have been in Ephesians chapter 4. If you turn back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Ephesians 1. Whoops, I've been two. 22 and 23 of Ephesians chapter 1. And it's talking about Christ in verse 22 of the first chapter. And he, that is the Father, the Father put all things in subjection under his feet, under Christ's feet. The Father put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the head, the church is the body. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. The fourth chapter of the 15th verse. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even Christ. Christian marriage is designed by God to illustrate the headship of Christ. And so that brings us back to verse 23 of the fifth chapter. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Christ is the head, we are the body. What is the responsibility of the head? You know, if we had a department head, you know, what is the responsibility of the head, a department head? Everything that happens under his or her supervision as a department head is their responsibility, their accountability. Christ is the head, we are the body. He is responsible, he is the head, he is the one that, that makes the decisions and sets the goals and says this is the way it's going to be. And uh, he is the head, we are, are the body. The same way that our physical head, our physical brain tells the body what to do. But eventually the, the, the head is the one that takes full responsibility. And so Christ is the head, we are the body. And secondly, Christian marriage is designed by God to illustrate the submission of Christ for his church. We saw that uh, being introduced, that submissive part, uh, at the end of verse 23 when it comes to Christ, because it says, he himself being the savior of the body. And then in verse 25, it says, husbands love your wives, How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us. You know, it's not easy to think of our Lord as an example of submission. Yet Jesus, while he walked on this earth, he fully submitted himself to the will of the Father. We've looked at some of these passages recently, but I picked out two or three more that, uh, that I, I'm not sure we've, we've actually read yet. Just listen to these. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? Lord of lords, King of kings, while I walked in this earth, I can do nothing in my own initiative because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me, who is the Father, 
I just seek the will of my Father in heaven. And then in John 6, 38, the Lord said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then John 8, 28. So Jesus said, When you see the Son of Man, well, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing of my own initiative by speak these things as the Father taught me. When you see me hanging on the cross, Jesus says, then you didn't know I did nothing in my own initiative, but I speak only the things the Father taught me. The Lord Jesus Christ was totally and completely dependent upon his heavenly Father in all things by yielding to the Holy Spirit. Turn over to Peter's first letter for a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. Page 1478 in the, the Bibles in the racks. Second chapter of, of 1 Peter, the 21st verse. These are very familiar words that talking about walking or following in Jesus' steps. When we're exhorted here in 1 Peter to follow Jesus in example and follow in his steps, I think in those more honest moments when we really think about it, we tend to think, I can't walk in Jesus' steps. Can, can I love like Jesus loved? If, if I came across that repulsive beggar with skin lesions all over them, could I heal that person with a touch? No, I can't do that. I, I can't walk on water. I can't heal with a touch. But what we miss is that following in Jesus' steps is to clothe ourselves with humility and to be completely dependent upon the Spirit of God. It means to cast off our independence and fully rely on the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to follow in Jesus' steps. We walk as, as he walked. So let's look at the verses that have to do with following in the steps of Jesus, beginning at verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Right off the top, we see that following his steps has to do with suffering. It has to do with suffering. His steps, Jesus' steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. In submitting himself to wicked and sinful men, Peter says that Jesus became the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. We have a tough time, or at least I do, thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ as having to even have to have a submissive spirit. He's Lord of lords. He's King of kings. He upholds everything by the, the power of, of his hand. And, <coughs> excuse me. But we tend to only think in terms of one's station, one's authority, rather than in terms of one's humility and one's service. 
You know, our Lord's status and authority was all the reason that he could have avoided the cross. He could have called down 10,000 angels, right? Because of who I am, boom, take you guys out. (laughs) But the submissive service to the church as its savior required his suffering and dying on the cross. The giving up of his life. Our Lord humbled himself, not regarding his own personal interest above ours and submitted to the agony of the cross. I'm going to take something down from the top shelf just for a minute. Husbands, men, how are we in a submissive role in our marriages? Husbands, love the church or love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christian marriage is designed by God to illustrate the the headship of Christ. Secondly, Christian marriage is illustrated or designed by God to illustrate the submission of Christ on behalf of his church. And lastly, to illustrate the unity of Christ and his church. Back to Ephesians chapter 5 at verse 28. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For, the reason a man, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. A fundamental element of all this mystery is the union between Christ and his church. That we would have this kind of union. And think about this for a moment. Let's go back to Old Testament times. How did things work in the Old Testament when it came to God? Do you remember? People had to keep their distance from God. Time and time again, God says, keep away. They were told to stay away from Mount Sinai. Only Moses could meet with God and speak to him face to face. The Old Testament people could only approach God through the shedding of blood and in both the tabernacle and the temple. Only the high priest once a year after much ritual cleansing could enter the Holy of Holies where God dwelt. In the Old Testament, little did men dream of the intimacy which God had in mind for his people. That was a mystery, but now it has been fully revealed. Jesus came to this earth and tabernacled among men. He took on human flesh without diminishing his humanity. And when Jesus died on the cross, the veil which formerly separated men from God in the temple was torn asunder from top to bottom. The Lord Jesus became the means of an intimacy with the Almighty God that Old Testament saints could only imagine, they could never imagine it, that now we can draw near with confidence into the very presence of God and have an intimate, loving relationship with him. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23 is based on the principle that God has established certain institutions in this world which are earthly symbols 
of what we will experience in their heavenly realities. And to pervert the symbol is to distort the picture of the heavenly reality which it represents. The marriage relationship is intended by God to be a living illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church. So let me ask some rhetorical questions in conclusion. And uh, they're a little bit sarcastic, as you'll, as you'll notice, but the Apostle Paul was good at using sarcasm. But this will spur our thinking before we get specifically into the role of wives next week. And these questions are directed at those that we see almost every day on TV. We have talkback TV in our house, which the level rises as the news goes on. But this is, this is a different kind of, of talkback. If, if we could sit down with these people and just ask them some questions, you know, those who have chosen to set aside the teachings of Paul and set aside the counsel of Scripture pertaining to the roles and responsibilities of husbands, if, if they have set aside certain biblical commands, if they've set aside the biblical duties and actions, what have they replaced them with? What are they doing which boldly and dramatically reflects the headship of Jesus Christ over his church and the submission of the church to Christ? What are they doing which contradicts the values and attitudes of the world in which we live? And of course, I'm being sarcastic because they're not doing anything, nor do they want to do anything. What are they doing so the traumatic contrast between Christianity and heathenism is underscored? The only thing they're doing is showing us what heathenism is. With what have they replaced God's symbols? And I'm sad to say that those who have set aside divine duties have not replaced them with anything which challenges and contradicts the world, the flesh, and the devil. But I have one more question to ask all of you. Have you received the salvation which Ephesians 5, through 23 calls on Christians to symbolize by their relationship as husbands and wives. Have you received the salvation that Jesus is talking about or gave us? In other words, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because we see this beautiful picture. As a man seeks out the woman whom he loves and he woes that woman to himself, so Jesus Christ is seeking out those who become his bride, his church. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a sinless life. He manifested God to a sinful world by his works and his words. And then he died on the cross of Calvary, bearing the punishment that we deserved for our sins. By trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, in his sacrificial death, his burial, and resurrection, you become one with Christ. You become part of his bride, a part of his church. And just as a man proposes to the woman of his choice, God proposes to you. This morning, through the proclamation of the gospel, God is proposing to you. And as a woman must accept the proposal of her husband-to-be, so you must accept God's offer of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And why do I say this? 
Because as we talk about parenting on Sunday night and we talk about the family on Sunday morning, there's no value in trying to live by the symbol of marriage until your heart is right with Jesus Christ. There's no purpose, there's no value in trying to live by it until we know Jesus Christ and we have committed to live for him. Shall we? Father, we do thank you for the sacrifice that our Savior Jesus Christ made on our behalf. Father, we, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and the lives of others, drawing us to Christ, convicting us concerning sin and righteousness, Lord. And I thank you that you have, even before the foundation of the world, a purpose for each one of us to live for all eternity in intimate union with Jesus Christ as the bride of Christ. Father, I don't want anyone to, to go from this place or, or to take this lightly without considering whether or not they are in Christ and what their commitment to him as their head is, Lord. Father, we thank you for the wonder that is the mystery of Christ and the eternal relationship that we will enjoy with Christ and with one another. And Father, I thank you for speaking to our hearts and to our minds this morning through some things that are difficult to understand because the culture and the society has a whole different view and a whole different agenda. Father, I thank you that during this time we could focus on the head, our head, Jesus Christ. And I give you thanks in his name.